I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 278 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Susan Schwartz. She's here to talk about her new book, Imposter Syndrome and the As-If Personality in Analytical Psychology. Rendering Unconscious won the 2023 Gradiva Award for Digital Media from the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis. I want to say huge thanks to all of the guests and listeners of Rendering Unconscious over the years. Your support has made all the difference. It's a wonderful feeling to receive this honor from the psychoanalytic community at large and to get recognition for the work done here at Rendering Unconscious Podcast. So thank you all. Extra special thank you to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is hugely appreciated. Rendering Unconscious Podcast is a labor of love. I do everything myself, and I'm very grateful to all of you who support my work. If you'd like to sign up, you can sign up for as little as $2 a month at Rendering Unconscious's Patreon page. That's Vanessa23Carl, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. For those who prefer Substack, we've also started a Substack, which is similar, Vanessa23Carl at substack.com. The Substack only gets the weekly Magic Monday posts, as well as newsletters and other things that go out to everyone, whereas Patreon has a lot more behind the scenes, always gets the posting notification about the podcast first, many works in progress updates, and things like that. Also, at the suggestion of a rendering unconscious listener, I have joined the Amazon Affiliates program. So if you are going to order a book that you hear about on Rendering Unconscious Podcast, why not go to the notes or the website where you can find a link that takes you to my Amazon affiliates page to purchase the book and it sends like 30 cents over to the podcast. Every little bit helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, reviewing books, especially books from independent presses and academic presses, is really helpful. It does make a difference on Amazon and other online retailers. So go ahead and write a review for any books that you read that you like or enjoy. Links can be found in the liner notes accompanying this episode as well as at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. As usual, there's a video accompanying this discussion, which you can find at YouTube. Just search for Trapar Films YouTube page. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. And join us this Sunday on January 21st for the first Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult event of the year. This is the strangest life I've ever known, a psychological portrait 
of Jim Morrison by Dr. Anna Leorne. Carl Abrahamson and I are both hosting this event. It's online via Zoom, live, hosted by Morbid Anatomy Museum. You can find more information at morbidanatomy.org slash events or psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. It's at 1 p.m. New York City time, which is 6 p.m. in the UK and 7 p.m. here in Sweden. This Sunday, January 21st. See you there. Hi, Susan. Welcome back to Rendering Unconscious. We're so happy to have you here to talk about your new book. Thank you very much for having me. As I said before, I totally appreciate being here. It's great. And and like I said before, I think this book really has relevance to what is going on today. So do you want to talk a little bit about why you wrote the book or what the idea was behind it? Oh, well, actually, you just said it. It is what is going on today. And also, in my work as a Jungian analyst, I keep seeing have seen over the years and keep seeing people who are, will come in and say, I know I'm a fraud. I know I'm not real. I know nobody gets me. Nobody understands this. And I do well in the world. So nobody knows. And I can't stand it any longer. I don't want to be an imposter. And I don't want to pretend as if. But I want to add one other thing to that. I've also had feedback where people have said, what is an as-if personality? I think, are you questioning something which seems to me so apparent in our world where everything can be photoshopped, altered, put out in some kind of phony story, It can also be true stories, but I think that comment of what is an as-if personality shows a certain amount of unconsciousness that goes on as well. Absolutely, and I think, like you said, it's only going to get worse from here or more so from here that we're going to be able to alter ourselves or our image. Everything is more things are digital, more things are kind of in this meta way where people are like encouraged to be a person that is a product or a brand themselves to like put themselves out there. And it makes them think of themselves in this kind of detached way more and more. I feel like we're going to see more and more of this. I agree with you. I think even as you said that, how many times I get on the email uh, about, do you want to improve your brand? Not yourself, mm-hmm. your brand. is quite a different story. And I think that we are, you're right, encouraged. And even little children are encouraged to put themselves out there in a way that might not be true. And how do we even know what is true? How do we know? Who teaches us? So those are all reasons that I wrote the book, but also because I think that underneath that part that says I'm fraudulent is somebody who wants to be real. 
and just doesn't know how. So analysis and therapy to me is you learn to be yourself. Mm-hmm. And in a supportive place, it's not that you're ideal. That's the other problem to be ideal or perfect, but to be really you with your lovely flaws and lovely things that work and don't work and to accept it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I feel like analysis has really come to be that also like learning what kind of things you've internalized and the ideas of what you should be like and like where did you get that idea from and like you know who projected that onto you was it society or parents or where did you get that idea and learning to realize like what is really you or what do you really want to be versus what has been like kind of put into you by the outside world. Yes and I think that is culture, it's family, it's peers, uh, partners, who encourage a level of unreality and be who they want you to be. And then people fall into it. I think one of the things that we learn in analysis and therapy is how to reflect, just like you said, how to reflect on what we learned, who we are, how do we want to be? And ah, one other thing as well, somebody just today mentioned about aging, And I do talk about aging in the book. And I think that it no matter what age we are, there is something in the Western culture, you could say, that doesn't honor it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And people learn, oh, either they can't do it or they have to deny who they are. They have to deny aging and they don't get to love it through their whole life. So that's another aspect of, uh, I think, what happens with people. And it's also encouraged. Uh, A lot for women. Mm -hmm. I think for men, too, but in a different way. But a lot for women. Yeah, absolutely. And and Mm -hmm. also, like, detachment from the body, like, wanting to have your body be a certain way. and, And you talk a lot about the body and the shadow. And I talk a lot about the body and the shadow both, partly because I think that the body gets left off, not with everybody, not with everyone, but in many therapies and analysis, people, and they talk about the head, but, but the whole body, how do you feel about your body? Are you in touch with your body? Are you numb? Are you empty in your body? Do you even feel what it is like to be yourself in your body? And, and I think that we we tend to jump over that, and I don't think we need to. And I think it's important that we don't. And the shadow, you know, in Jungian psychology, it would be the parts that are the potential and also the parts that we want to hide. So on both sides or on all sides, you want to be able to bring that out. It's not really so much encouraged to access shadow or access your body, no matter how it looks. Because how are you gonna be embodied if you are always feeling, I don't look right? Then you're constantly on that routine of, I have to be better, I can't be me, I'm not all right, I'm not all right, and then I'm not all right again. It's a dead end. It's never good enough. Mm. Never good enough and never real enough. And I think that 
I mean, I say Western culture because it's what I'm familiar with. I don't know if that's true in all cultures. I think in some, I don't think in all, and but I think it is very prevalent in the West and you can't get there. You can't be young enough. You can't be thin enough. You can't be gorgeous enough. You can't be smart enough. I mean, it's again, it's an unending story promoting be phony. Don't be your real self. Yeah, it's like more and more aspects of ourselves are getting cut off and the as if personality is getting like narrower and narrower, (laughs) like what it can be. It can be this. And this is the only thing we can show. And it's not even really feeling real or authentic to ourselves. Um, Exactly. There, There is an aspect of the imposter syndrome and the as if personality, which shades into narcissism and echo and So Echo loses her body because she wants the attention of Narcissus. And he doesn't look at her at all. And I think that is also an image of what goes on inside. So I think a lot of people don't reflect internally. They don't know how to find their own, you could say, yeah, their own correct body. And they become too narrow, too narrow, 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 narrow. And then they don't exist. It creates, I've heard this a lot, a black hole inside. Mm. I feel this hole inside or I feel empty at the core. And I think that that's a piece of what happens if you have to be an imposter that you learn so little right? The message is when you're little, I want to paint the tree purple. No, 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 you can't. Trees are green. Right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So should we talk a little bit about different aspects of the book? You asked, you talked about so many great, you have like great like cultural vignettes and clinical vignettes and dreams. You have like so many great little stories that paint pictures of what you're describing. Yes, but you know, the, the beauty of the fairy tales and the myths and the dreams, you're right. They're little stories about what is going on right now. I, that's why they're all so relevant. You know, I mean, we all have a favorite myth or fairy tale or movie or video that that reflects us a little vignette. This is me, or this is what I would like to be or what I aspire to. And the dreams help get there. I think the dreams are really important. I value them quite a lot because they tell us what we don't know about ourselves and what we hesitate to learn about ourselves. I mean, I think the value is also, um, what should I say? Every analytical approach has got a different interpretation of dreams. Are they all right? Yeah, in a certain way. The point, the, They're not wrong. The point is that it's revealing a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that's why I put in all the stories, the stories of people, real people, who are um, struggling, who say, yes, yeah, you can use my material because I want other people to know. 
what I've struggled with and how I got through it. I, I think that's the other reason for writing a book is to help people know you can get through it and you can learn about yourself and feel okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because this idea of imposter syndrome as a personality, it reminds me a little of like when you learn like self-psychology and like the false self, you know, but it's like, yes. yeah, exponential now. <laughs> it is it is exponential. You're right. But, you know, as I was researching for the book, I looked up a lot on imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome. And this is where I think it's a bit different from the as if personality how it is used is very superficial. Mm. It, it's only conscious. It doesn't deal with the unconscious world at all. And it's very rote, cut and dried. And I think any personality is really rich and, and really has so many layers to it. And I think if we only look at that conscious piece, we are um, short-circuiting ourselves. There's a lot more there. There's a lot more there. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. The conscious piece is such a small fragment of us. And that's why I think like this branding or like I've heard a lot of people, especially I guess it's the millennial generation, is like very much like grown up with like the internet and this idea of like how you present yourself online and and just these different like corporate marketing strategies that they've kind of learned is just like the way the world works, you know? Um, but I, I think it's so tragic to think of yourself that way and like having to like have an idea of who you are like ahead of time and then try to become that, that ideal rather than like kind of being curious about life and yourself and like seeing how you unfold and maybe being surprised, you know, at things that happen. Yes, well, you mentioned so many things in that. One is um, allowing for curiosity, because curiosity leads us beyond what we know. So it's, it's a beautiful thing. And maybe we're not curious enough if we're hemmed in on the Internet. The other thing is that I remember seeing a, a little video of a young teenager who had been, who had gotten this, this commentary on the internet about her looks. And you see her with, you see her crying. It was very sad. She didn't know what to do. She felt completely put down by people. She didn't even know who they were. There was no interaction. It was very different, distant. There was very distant. And that's actually the prob a problem we have too much distance between us, you know? I mean, although we are talking through a computer, we're talking about real things. But oftentimes we find, you know, this kind of conflict with social media because it can be wonderful and it can also rip apart a personality very much. And children, yeah, they're children. Many did also, the generations that are happening they don't know another way. Yeah. Just just like you said. And so what will we could almost imagine what is our world going to come to then? A, a, a lot of robotic people who are not individual? I mean that's a question. I just I wonder if that isn't a danger. 
Yeah, I think about it all the time, too, because I feel like I'm kind of in the last generation that didn't grow up with computers. I didn't get my first computer until like 2002, you know, (laughs) maybe 2000, let's say. Um, So I was already like, you know, out of college, end of college. Um, But uh, but yeah, for people who just grow up with it and they don't know a different way, I'm seeing a lot of young people come in like very fragmented, like having difficulty with attention and everybody thinks they have ADHD, ADD and neurodivergence and things. But it's uh, I just to me seems very evident that it's because they have computers their whole lives and they haven't like learned like to read for hours and hours on end and having this kind of like a sustained attention and they're just like fragmented and trained to like jump around from thing to thing to thing to thing so of course they feel like that you know yeah yes but you see then that promotes Uh, the as if an imposter. And, you know, when we get on the computer, you don't just get the one thing that you're looking for. You get all the ads of everything you looked at before, Mm -hmm. and then you get something else, and then something else will flash, and then you get a message, and then you have another. And so if you talk about neurodivergence, there you are already. Boom, boom, boom. What shall I pay attention to? And in doing that, It's a question, don't we lose ourselves? Don't we lose the core of who we really are? If we're always hopping around from this to this to this, we don't, even when you said about a book, I don't know, a lot of people, you know, they get eBooks, they don't get even a paperback I don't think people are reading that much anymore. I think maybe reading articles, like scanning them, but I don't, I, I don't think people are reading whole books as much as they used to. Or like even just like having to develop this like creativity where you like have to entertain yourself. You know, It's like, okay, what am I going to do now? And you have to like invent something. Nobody has to invent anything anymore. You just look at your phone, look at your computer and things are just fed to you. So there's no like, there's no like intrinsic need to like fill the time with something that you have to invent or create, you know? Well, you can avoid yourself. That's what you're saying. You can avoid yourself. And so when people have said, what is the as if personality? I have thought and said, but are you avoiding yourself? Because you're not realizing it could be you. It could be any of us in certain ways. I mean, we all want to be able to be flexible and put on a persona for this and for this and for this but not a fake one, not a fake one. And I think you're right. Uh, Are there going to be enough people who value the creative process? Because it takes time. I mean, in order to develop and develop and develop, you have to devote time to it and want to and see the value in focus. Maybe that's part of what's being lost for sure. Yeah. Focus and sustained attention is precious. I mean, I've noticed myself, like my own attention getting got, got worse for a period. So I've intentionally like make sure that I read for like an hour a day so that I'm like sitting and reading and not looking at the phone or like, what did I used to do? Like at this doctor's appointment, instead of looking at my phone, it's like, I used to bring a book with me and have a little book with me in my purse everywhere I went, you know? So I'm trying to like remember that and get back to it but like you said like people that didn't grow up having to do that they don't have a before to get back to so this is just how it is 
That is true. I've found that when I'm on an airplane or sitting at the doctor's office, just like you said, I do bring a book and I feel, wow, I'm different than all these other people who are not on the book. They're not, they don't even, they don't even think about bringing a book. Mm -hmm. And I think about bringing a book because I like the feel of it because I'm used to it. It's, you know, it's what we are used to. So actually what we're saying is how many people get used to being imposters and then they don't even know that they are imposters. They don't even, it's not even on the radar. They're so used to it. It's very sad in a way. On the other hand, I do think that the people who come in and, and can say, I'm not being real. I know it. I know I'm kind of, it's not that they're lying, but they're kind of lying. And then to, to really get that honest feedback of, are you really being yourself? And have you even thought about who yourself is? And the self comes through the dreams. If we go back to that, the self comes through the dreams. And so if you write down your dreams and you pay attention to them, yourself is going to come forward. It's, it's like natural. And maybe there is something in all of this about getting back to one's natural self, your real self. I, I want to mention one other thing too, which is that uh, in the book, I do talk about family and how we begin our lives. And again, in this book, like my other one on the absent father, I do kind of focus more on the effect of the father. And the reason is that so much former psychoanalytic and psychology literature focused on the mother as the one who shapes the child in good ways or not good ways. And I'm not sure if that mother figure, whoever is the mother, I don't think it's bringing in enough of the effects of all people that can influence a child mm -hmm. and bring the reality of the child out. So I do bring in more of the influence of a father figure onto a child it's because it's important how we get raised. I don't think it says, this is it. If you had a difficult childhood, you can forget it about having a good adulthood. I don't think that's true, but I do think you have to look at what influenced you and how you're carrying it inside yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Reckon with the shadow. <laughs> exactly. But it within that was, so where do we learn? Where do we learn to put different personality parts into the shadow? Where do we learn to deny our potential? Where do we learn to be destructive to ourselves? Or even, I mean, I heard somebody the other day saying, I'm being sadistic to myself. I mean, uh, so these are horrible pieces. Where did we learn it? Do we learn it in the culture? Do we learn it in family? Do we learn it in school? Do we learn it from the kid down the street that bullied us? You know, all these things are so important to kind of go over. It's like uh, cleansing the system. And I, I think it takes devotion and time to be able to do that. And I hope that we have not all become a culture of six sessions and that's it and you're fine. I hope that's 
not going to be what just happens. Me too. I, I, I like to believe that psychoanalysis and analytic psychology is becoming more popular than ever. <laughs> That's my dream. <laughs> and in my tiny corner of the world, I feel like people are getting more interested in it. But of course, I only have this tiny view of the world. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, the Swedish healthcare system, for example, they do the succession thing. <laughs> but everyone I know does the long-term thing. <laughs> but, you know, I think also... That's kind of what both of us are promoting is, is talking about something that takes more time, the, the value of one's personality and learning how to value one's personality. And I would hope the same thing, that, the, you know, that, that a longer term approach <clears throat> brings somebody into themselves and has them appreciate who they are <clears throat> and that they realize they don't have to retain a false front. That the, the the real can come through. It's it's such a vulnerable position. That is the other piece. It's you, you have to be very vulnerable to be yourself and take off that as if facade and cover. It can be very exciting, I think. But of course, you know, when you're more familiar with being totally oneself, you can say it's exciting. When you're just starting on the process, you can say, oh my gosh, this is a deal. It's anxiety provoking. Yeah. For people, especially starting out. But yeah, I think like you said that like this shorter term treatments, they really might kind of help bolster the imposter you know what I mean and just like making you stay in that or like learning how to kind of ignore the parts of you that are trying to break through to help you like become more authentic or like listen to yourself and how you really want to be in the world um but I feel like the short-term treatments might just kind of like ego psychology like bolster up the defenses so that you don't so you block those things out and that's not good no because you know you only learn about yourself when the defenses are able to come down. And, and yet, I think also, a lot of people go into therapy and they say, I have this one problem. So I have one deal. And that's all that they want to do. But I think if one is gets hooked on the excitement of knowing yourself, the one expands farther. And you say, Oh, no, I want to stay longer. I realize there's a value to the depth of my being. And that's what I think is underneath the imposter syndrome and the as if personality is the, I want to know myself. You know, I don't, I talk about this in the book, but I always think it's kind of interesting that a woman psychoanalyst in the 1940s came up with the term as if personality, hmm. but mm -hmm. Uh, her name was Helena Deutsch, and she was a Viennese psychoanalyst and wrote one of the first books on the psychology of women. But what, what she said was the as if personality is more prevalent in females. But of course, this is the 1940s. So it's a different era, like our era determines ourselves as well. And then um, also the person was not just mostly women, but unanalyzable, like forget it. And that's not really true. And then a uh, Jungian 
um, analyst, Hester Solomon, in the early 2000s, revisited it, brought forward the as-if personality as somebody who could be analyzed, find value in themselves, go deeper, have a wealth to their personality. And once I read her article on that, I said, right, that is what I believe as well, that someone can grow and flower and learn and be, and they are analyzable, open, vulnerable, they can do it. I think there's something about our world which changed in all those years and is still changing. Absolutely. Yeah. I am not a fan of the idea that people, some people are unanalyzable. I have mm-hmm. not found that to be the case. And I've worked like psychodynamically, you know, with people who are psychotic and schizophrenic and, you know, sometimes maybe have to bring them like, a little bit of grounding if they seem to be getting too far into like fantasy and it seems to be not in a good way, you know, like maybe there's some exercises to ground, like you can, you don't have to do total like psychoanalysis, pure psychoanalysis or whatever, but I also don't believe in that. (laughs) Um, But like, yeah, there's absolutely ways to work. Everybody can look at their like fantasies and dreams and learn more about their mind and it helps them, you know, it helps everybody to learn more about their mind. (laughs) <laughs> I, I I've not met anyone who I thought was unanalyzable. I think that the trick, not the trick, but what might be difficult is these people are quite vulnerable and tender inside. So they could tend to jump away. But I think if you can establish a connection and relationship, that's what they want. And they will absolutely stay for sure. I think the other piece is finding a delight in the symbols that appear in the dreams. So the relationship in therapy, I think, really helps people find themselves. I mean, how else do you find yourself if you don't find yourself in a relationship? But also the symbols that come in the dreams, even simple symbols like food or, yeah, or a place, or your house, and and what that means and how it unfolds, people become enchanted with who they are, and they want to know more. So it can be incredibly hopeful, not unanalyzable. I agree with you. That's why I went through that little story about where the as-if personality, what it evolved from. Of course, the other piece also is that Women and women as patients were in the beginning of psychoanalysis. Their psyches were the ones that actually Freud worked on most of all. It's Mm. quite interesting if you kind of follow it. And now currently even, although I think there's quite a few men that are in analysis and therapy, probably there's still more women that are. Maybe there's, I don't know why something culturally related, what we get grown up to be, many factors that are there. Absolutely. And I do appreciate what you talk about the family and the and the father. And I have your absent father book back here too. 
<laughs> and everybody should go listen to that episode as well. <laughs> well, you know, it's related because it speaks about, so both of them speak about, because I'm I'm kind of interested in this place of absence or a void or that black hole. All of, because within that, under it, around it, is the potential. It's just sitting there waiting to be tapped. And that's what I find incredibly exciting about dealing with people. Okay, go into what you didn't get and fill it. That's the absence. Fill the absence with something different. It's more, that is more who you are. Yeah, and it fits for you. Would you talk a little bit about Jung's theory of individuation? Because I feel like that's so unique to Jungian analysts and I just love it. Yes, I love it too. What I love about it is the the words, the process of individuation. So it's a process of becoming yourself, which means be who you really are, which unfolds your entire life. It's not an end. It's like keep on going, 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 going. Individuation as in who you are, not like everybody else who you are particular to yourself. Not that you uh, are not going to be relating to other people, because of course you will, but your individual self will be formed differently than others. Some similarities, but quite a bit different. And you will access the shadow and the ego and different parts, aspects of your personality through finding your specialness. So to me, the process of individuation means finding how you are special and working at it, really being devoted to that process of being yourself. And as Jung talks about, that process involves analysis or therapy, and it involves us as analysts and therapists also changing not being in a rigid something, but changing along with all the people that come to see us. So we all get to grow. It's not using people, it's being open to whatever they're carrying, which is quite different from us. I mean, the difference is wonderful if we're open to it and then we all get to grow. So the change, the individuation process means the analyst will change as well as the patient. It's, it's relational. Yeah, it's relational. And that's what I think is wonderful. It's like, to me, I think, well, it's not just the transference or counter-transference. It's both of them together. Transferences. How are we seeing each other? How are we aware? And how are we as analysts aware of ourselves? And use ourselves consciously it's always being on an edge of learning and growing therefore exciting yeah i love that and it's so true i mean i always think of that that what a privileged position this profession is because you get to like see inside somebody's world and worldview and you always learn something from seeing all these different perspectives and understanding them and it's like such an education in itself you know well but you see i think as we are open to others they become open to themselves but if we have to have a rigid theory that we follow 
then that person is going to have to follow the same rigid theory. Mm -hmm. So the process of individuation is unique. There's no recipe. There's no, so some people want the recipe. Other people, I think it's more fluid and it allows for differences that are unexpected and we all get to be challenged. And a word that you mentioned earlier, curious. Mm -hmm. We get to be curious about each other and for somebody to realize that someone is genuinely interested in them. Oh my goodness. Does that change things? Absolutely. And it, that reminds me too, there's like one example that you give where someone like wants to go to like a life coach because the coach like gives them advice and has kind of all the answers. And an analytic process is so different because it really like needs to come from the person themselves. You know, you can't like have somebody else be telling you, you know, what to do or what the solution is, you know? That is true. I think that the person that I referred to there, it was a good example because um, it's not, it's a coach for this and then it's a coach for food mm. and then it's a coach for exercise and then it's a coach for business and then it is a coach for marriage and it's a coach for this and this and this. And you kind of wonder how does anybody hold all those because all those coaches are different. All those different viewpoints, how do you become yourself, an independent self, you know, valuing yourself? I don't know if you can, but you know, that's me. So, but yeah, I think, that's what we're sold to do. Have a coach for everything. <laughs> that, that's what I mean for eating, for this, for that. For, how do we learn to rely on ourselves? That's the process of individuation is you rely on yourself, you know you're okay. It's like you figure out, this is the kind of food that's right for me. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be right for anybody else. This is right for me. This is the kind of clothes I want to wear. This is the color I feel good in. But it's not just a superficial, it's from the core. So if you operate from the core, the core fills up automatically. You're your own coach. You become your own coach. Yeah, that's what people really need. We need people to be able to trust themselves and their own perspectives and be curious about themselves rather than feeling like they have to be something for some everybody else, be things for everybody else, and also do what everyone else expects of them or what they should do. Yes, but you know, that is also our challenge as analysts and therapists is that who we work with, we impart with, so it's a with process and a trust in their own finding their own way with us. But I, th I think, again, the relational quality is so important that it's not somebody because then we create kind of a strange dependency and then they have to always be asking us what they should do, which isn't really very helpful for being a person. Yeah, exactly. I always tell people like at the end of this, you won't need me anymore. Like that's, that's my goal is that you don't need me anymore. And you just go on and keep doing it for yourself. You know, then you can always come back if you want, if you're going through a stressful time, but you know, eventually you just like internalize the process and are able to just trust yourself. Yes. But I think what happens, cause I was thinking the same thing that as you were talking that what gets internalized is the analyst or the therapist is 
inside of the person and they know that they are they know they've changed they know they have changed in jungians jung uses a lot of um you know like initiations and uh, a rebirth but it happens you know it's not it's not some kind of in the sky thing you find yourself changing almost unwittingly because you're focusing on yourself and you're going to change. And that in and of itself is an initiation into another part of yourself, which is like a rebirth. So it's one thing after the other, constantly moving without a frenetic, running, manicky kind of way. It's an evolution, like uh, the opening of a flower is what it really is. Yeah. And you actually got to train at the Jung's Institute in Zurich. I did train in Zurich. What was that like? It was quite a long time ago. And of course, like everything, it's it has changed as well. And there's many more institutes now in Zurich mm-hmm. than when I went there. And it was interesting in the sense that Zurich is quite different than the United States where I live. And so it was really walking into another culture, another world, being challenged all the time, and really having to be very conscious. So it was an amazing, for me, an amazing experience, because Zurich certainly does not look like where I live in the United States, <laughs> nor should it. And it, may, it makes one live on another edge. And I think it's so valuable to live in another culture. You really then understand something else. And you always have to deal with "Ah, a little bit unease. Did I really understand what was going on? (laughs) And the Jung Institute itself is in a very old building on the lake. It's Mm. very beautiful, very um, idyllic in a certain way and very grounded. So the whole process of analysis can has to be, you said it earlier, very grounding. You can't just be in the sky. You have to be grounded. You have to be serious. You have to read a bunch. You have to learn a lot. And it's exciting and interesting. And there's a lot of books. So you get to read books, yes. So it was, it was very rich, very, very rich. Yeah, I bet. You do learn so much about yourself, being in another culture, about yourself and the culture you came from, too. You get so much perspective on it when you're outside of it. Yes, because, well, like you said, you're outside of it. And so analysis and therapy kind of moves us outside of our complexes, the things that, you know, kind of grab us and make us do who knows what, go unconscious. And so if you move away from it a little bit, you get to examine what has really run my life and uh, do I want it to continue? So you start to break through the complexes and really understand by putting yourself in a different situation. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and I just recently got the black books. They they had the red book came out in 2009 and then they, they released the black books. I guess it was last year. And I have not gone through them. I just flipped through. 
but I'm excited to dive into that as well. Yes, and you know, there's another thing, which is that <clears throat> Jung, evidently, there are tons of papers and letters. Wow. Yes, that wants that still will be translated and have yet to be translated. I think the Philemon Foundation does that. So it's very interesting, but it's also interesting what you said about the black books, because I've heard other people also say, I got the black books and I haven't yet gotten into them. So you have to do it when it is the right moment. And just in relation to the as if or imposter, that wasn't Jung. He was like, I mean, he had a lot of faults and a lot of issues like everybody. But, you know, what he wrote was his real self and his struggles to be his real self. And to some people, it looks strange, weird or whatever. But if you're really going into yourself, you're it's not weird in there. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird in there. It's weird. It's supposed to be weird in there. Absolutely. And, you, and you're supposed to be a little afraid, a little wondering, a little, oh my gosh, am I that weird? And the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, we're and all that weird. <laughs> Which is why people don't do it alone. I mean, if you're really going to intensely go into yourself, you can't really do it alone. You need, you need, uh, guidance and somebody with you in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really a good point. Um, yeah, and I've also heard, it's Freud, but somebody that used to be the chair of the Freud Museum that I know, he said mm -hmm. that the attic of the Freud Museum in London is like full of boxes of things that haven't been translated and letters and correspondence and all sorts of stuff. Yes. Amazing how much stuff there is still to get. <laughs> there is, but you know also, it is a different era because it was written on paper. So, I mean, we have history in our computers, but that was another era of paper. Quite like Jung, there's a lot of paper. There's a lot of people with a lot of paper. And uh, it's interesting, the wealth of material that still is there and we still will uncover quite like our personalities. It's a wealth of material. Hopefully we will keep on uncovering it our whole lives. Yeah, it keeps evolving. Is there it anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to when we were talking about this? I don't think so. I just want to say that people can find the book on Rootledge's, uh, yes, website. It's also on Amazon, Parnac, all kinds of places. And... My website is susanschwartzphd.com. Yes. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here again. And I look forward to having you on again in the future whenever you want to come back. Thank you so much, Vanessa. It's been a delight. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard an episode with Dr. Susan Schwartz. Be sure to check out our previous conversation, episode 177 of Rendering Unconscious podcast, Jungian analyst Susan Schwartz on the absent father effect on daughters. And be sure to visit her website, 
SusanSchwartzPhD.com. Links to everything can be found at renderingunconscious.org and in the show notes accompanying this episode. And join us this Sunday on January 21st for the first psychoanalysis, art, and the occult event of the year. This is the strangest life I've ever known, a psychological portrait of Jim Morrison by Dr. Anna Leorne. Carl Abrahamson and I are both hosting this event. It's online via Zoom, live, hosted by Morbid Anatomy Museum. You can find more information at morbidanatomy.org slash events or psychartcult.org. That's P-S-Y-C-H-A-R-T-C-U-L-T dot org. It's at 1 p.m. New York City time, which is 6 p.m. in the UK and 7 p.m. here in Sweden. This Sunday, January 21st. See you there. Huge thanks as always to Carl Abrahamson for providing the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. You can visit his website, carlabrahamson.com, for more. And check out his record label, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Rendering Unconscious has a new social media presence. I've just started an Instagram account for Rendering Unconscious itself. Just search for Rendering Unconscious. You can also find a link to it at my personal Instagram page, rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. And now the song, Something New, from the album Disturbance, a collaboration I did with Pete Murphy, available at petemurphy.bandcamp.com. You can also find my music at Spotify, including my music with Pete Murphy. Just search for my name, Vanessa Sinclair, or Vanessa Sinclair and Pete Murphy. Enjoy. Travelers, fast progress, something new, conveys their manner here. This case is well authenticated. Left hand dreams of metaphysics. Blue sky, the burning sun, mineral radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun. Disturbing the ionosphere, the invisible, mechanical parts, the internal organs, gave me a theme is the man a theme 
is the man. Radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun. Radiation from the sun.